0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. On today's podcast, we're going to continue our discussion on uh, substance-related disorder or addictive disorders, and in particular, opiate or or opioid misuse uh, or disorder. And uh, in general, we've talked about overall uh, what it takes to uh, otherwise be diagnosed Uh, as having a substance-related or addictive disorder and addictive disorder. Uh, But in particular, we've been uh, examining opiates because it is one of the most widely addicted substances in the United States. And that was according to a national survey that was conducted in 2017. Uh, On that list were also uh, substances such as cocaine, nicotine, and the marijuana and uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future we will take a look at at least the nicotine and the marijuana uh, addiction uh, and apply it to the general category of substance related and addictive disorders and the criterion for um, use misuse uh, as well as dependence uh, what used to be abuse and uh, physiological psychological dependence but until we get there Uh, We've not only covered the DSM, the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Uh, again, diagnostic criterion for uh, these, uh, particularly substances in general, but particularly opiates, Uh, but we've also begun a uh, bit of an extensive discussion on treatment. After all, once you've made the diagnosis, it is equally important then to follow that up with good treatment strategies. And to do that, uh, in combination with the American Psychiatric Association, DSM, uh, we in the industry also then take a look at the American Society of Addiction Medicine's levels of care, uh, which would then be specifically those recommended sorts of levels of intervention. And uh, base that on several different dimensions, one through six, uh, that includes uh, Intoxication, withdrawal potential, biomedical conditions, emotional behavioral problems, readiness for change, uh, risk for relapse or continued use, as well as the current living environment. Uh, So it's sort of a matrix. Uh, We also, in our last program, covered pretty, again, extensively, exhaustively, the idea of early intervention and the intention for that to uh, be somewhat preventative, to uh, stop one Uh, from uh, progressing along that continuum from uh, abuse to certainly dependence or from mild to severe uh, when it comes to uh, how we qualify a particular uh, substance-related condition uh, disorder or addictive disorder or substance-related disorder. Uh, We also began our conversations of outpatient, which is really level one care, And uh, outpatient really (laughs) is uh, probably the most common, uh, at least in the earliest stages, the most common form of treatment. Uh, And even so, uh, as you might be more along that line of progression, uh, the disease, as we've discussed it in previous podcasts, has certainly manifested itself. The idea that it is a disease, and with that, the progressive nature. Uh, of a disorder or disease, Uh, even if someone has at some point been in prior treatment uh, levels of care, and uh, then has had relapses, still outpatient tends to represent uh, the category of treatment, the level of care where the majority of interventions are being uh, provided. Uh, It is the most readily accessible. Uh, It's the least intrusive or restrictive. Uh, You do not have to go to a hospital necessarily, which then is a 24-hour sort of uh, circumstance or situation uh, as opposed to a one-hour, maybe two- or three-hour on an outpatient basis, even less than intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization, uh, which is nowhere near the amount of time that inpatient would require or another residential level of care, Uh, would necessitate. But nonetheless, outpatient is pretty economical. Uh, It doesn't disrupt your life. You can continue to go home at night. You can continue or maintain a job, continue to uh, work during the day or evening. Uh, That can be adjusted, so your appointment's either during the day or evening. Uh, And outpatient is effective. It is, however, (laughs) once more, why we're having even this discussion, It's only as effective, though, as we make a good diagnosis and then a good and appropriate assessment as to what's the best level of care. Uh, Outpatient, when it comes to the uh, six dimensions on the ASAM matrix, or or, uh, based on ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine Criterion for levels of care and treatment, uh, outpatient then would represent a uh, minimal Manageable is a word that ASAM uses, none or manageable, uh, potential for uh, any difficulties that might be associated with intoxication or withdrawal. Most of those individuals are not necessarily going to go through or are presently when they come to see a person in that uh, setting or environment, are not going through uh, intoxication. And what is, again, intoxication? It's when you're using the substance. Uh, Withdrawal potential too, if it is early enough or they've not used a sufficient amount to represent much of a risk of withdrawal, uh, when they stop taking it, then they're going to have, again, uh, with that physiological dependence established, they're going to have some sort of a uh, side effect or an effect, probably more appropriately stated, an effect of not having the substance that they've been abusing in their system. And uh, with that, that effect usually is just the opposite of what the substance then does. There are certain substances that are more risky than others, though, because, uh, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the body can tolerate them greatly. Uh, there's a great amount of uh, capacity for the body to take large amounts of the substance, adjust itself to it, the body, so that when you stop using it, the body has made such the adjustment that once it's removed from your system in in an abrupt sort of manner, cold turkey, the body needs some time to recalibrate itself or readjust itself biochemically to not having the substance uh, in in the body. And then uh, with that can go back to a more normal range of bodily functioning. If you do it too quickly, the body is not given sufficient enough time on an biochemical level to go back to normal. We've called that homeostasis. So when a person comes to see us, it is important to consider what substance, with that how much, and if so, gauge what the withdrawal might be if the person happens to, at the time that they come to present themselves for care, come to the the counseling appointment, they we need to know what will happen if they up and stop it. Now, not all outpatient offices are going to prescribe medications either, and medication is probably one of the best ways, at least medication-supervised withdrawal, is one of the best ways to address any sort of a risk that the withdrawal might be so severe as to compromise the body's functioning or inability without the drug of uh, Of choice, the person's been using the substance, the illicit substance, and again, in context of our present discussion, it would be opiates, that the body can't function without it. And uh, again, the withdrawal could be so severe as to cause the body to stop functioning. So, in an event like that, you need medical assistance. You need someone who is a doctor, who has knowledge of uh, pharmacology, medications, what's going on in the body can be there to not only monitor but immediately prescribe a medication, though it may not be, certainly wouldn't likely be the substance that the person has been abusing. But if there is withdrawal potential that could have that kind of an effect, then we want that medically supervised. But typically you don't do that on an outpatient basis. You don't prescribe other medications necessarily to uh, counteract the withdrawal, except that the person would still be using, which is entirely possible when they present themselves for that initial visit. They still might be using. Uh, and with that, you could say, <laughs> How much? and get a, and for how long? and get a pretty good idea. And what's the potency? Uh, not only how much are you taking, but what's the potency, particularly when it comes to opiates? Uh, you might be taking X number of pills. Uh, But, as an example, but they may be different and with that they may have stronger dosing. The potency of each might be greater than lesser and you might run a risk of some sort of withdrawal and with that then the withdrawal might be somewhat compromising of your general health, your ability for your body to make adjustments. Uh, Typically speaking, though, uh, opiates aren't necessarily a substance that will kill you while you're going through withdrawal, but at the same time, you might think that that's going to happen because it is so uh, difficult to go through the withdrawal on on a bodily physiological level that the person might then otherwise be inclined to use another substance. They may be inclined to also... Possibly uh, buy more of the same and maybe with that run the risk of overdosing, Uh, buying something, uh, unfortunately taking too much. uh, With that, they might combine it or they might try to take something else to ease that uh, the physical discomfort that goes with the withdrawal uh, and with that then might inadvertently combine that with an opiate and have a synergistic effect. Where the two combined could cause such a thing as respiratory arrest, uh, where your body stops functioning because you stop breathing. Now again, what's the likelihood of that? Uh, That's the whole point. It's sort of an estimation. Uh, But when you're dealing with illicit substances, of course, you have to begin with the presumption you don't know what's in the substance. Even if you think you're buying what we call pharmaceutical-grade substance, where it is a pill that's been uh, manufactured, uh, has a a, a pharmaceutical company's label on it, uh, you still cannot be sure that, one, it isn't uh, anything but legit, uh, that it might be a knockoff, uh, and at the same time, Uh, They sometimes, those that do manufacture illicit substances, make them appear to be actually a prescribed medication, which is always the best for you because in a pharmaceutical sort of grade or quality, you're going to know what's in it. But unfortunately, when it's manufactured and then made to uh, imitate or appear to be the authentic or the genuine article, but it's really not they still may mix something else in it. They may say, well, it's this when it's really something else. Uh, and there is something to be said in an illicit or illegal market sort of way that addicts tend to be attracted to dealers who tend to have medications that, or substances uh, that tend to be very potent. And with that, sometimes even if they may be at that sort of marginal level with lethality. Uh, This is such a good one that other people have overdosed somehow to an addict. That sounds appealing. Uh, One, there's some degree of invincibility or just complete disregard for the potential risk after you've taken something like that long enough and it's not killed you. Uh, Even if you may have overdosed, there's chances that you could have come back from the overdose without medical intervention. That adds to that myth of invincibility. Uh, But when you hear on the street that somebody is selling something that is so powerful, so strong as to achieve a certain level of intoxication or effect, people flock to them. (laughs) They want that. That, again, is so counterintuitive to a normal perspective uh, when somebody's looking at the situation objectively, reasonably, rationally, it's hard to comprehend. But that's why most people who are reasonable and rational aren't addicts. Or if you are reasonable and rational and also an addict, you are not in the throes of a current sort of state of intoxication or in a phase of your addiction Uh, that otherwise your thinking has continued to or found itself to be again clouded uh, by the denial, uh, by just this kind of crazy way of looking at life. It comes down to basically how high you can get and how high you can stay without killing yourself. So this idea, though, that medication uh, can help to mitigate that, To lessen the risk of that is very appealing. But you probably are not going to do that in an outpatient context, uh, except that there would be some medication assist dimension, and we'll talk about that next, because that can happen at an outpatient level. But in this particular regard, we're going to look at it as outpatient, not medication assist, or outpatient with medication assist. And so there's going to be none or a manageable uh, risk of intoxication and withdrawal, and that again is taken within regard or context of that outpatient treatment is going to be extended for a period of time. And though the person may present in a in a sober state and a sober state of mind, there's going to be plenty of opportunities over the course of care between when that treatment initiates and when it terminates. Uh, that the individual may at certain strategic moments or points along the way uh, be at greater risk of relapsing and could then relapse along the way, which doesn't mean then that the person might not be appropriate for a higher level of care or that the level of care can't be reassessed, and then the individual would then be moved to a higher level of care because of failure of the existing level, that they've relapsed and that it seems like that's become all of a sudden too risky. But that notion is, though, that that needs to be constantly monitored and uh, reviewed and considered. When it comes to dimension two, biomedical conditions, when you're looking at outpatient, you're probably also going to want to make sure as you're making the treatment recommendation, the clinician is going to want to make sure that there's none or mild sort of biomedical conditions that are associated and that if there are any that are associated, that the person is receiving adequate medical services. Now, again, that isn't necessarily medically monitored detoxification or a detoxification uh, uh, where you mitigate, again, the withdrawal symptoms by prescribing a medication. Uh, this is actually for associated conditions that go along with, unfortunately, long-term substance abuse eventually at some point substances that are detrimental to the body will have that ultimate effect of destroying the body and with that then there's some vital organs that could be compromised Uh, people have heart problems hypertension from uh, chronic use of certain substances so all of those would have to be well maintained and managed on an outpatient basis lest you'd want to, again, put the person with example in a place where they could be monitored more closely, uh, even up to the point of 24 hours a day. And there is a difference between inpatient and residential or partial or halfway house or any of those other sort of interventions where it's uh, more intensive and that the individual is required to stay in the facility overnight, so to speak, but at this level, we're talking outpatient, and that's not part of the outpatient milieu. Uh, we're also going to be, on in Dimension 3, looking at any sort of associated emotional behavioral problems. Again, in prior podcasts, we've made that association, uh, that the individuals who are having emotional difficulties, maybe their comorbid conditions, maybe their concurrent di- diagnoses, what we call dual diagnoses, maybe there's anxiety and depression, that goes along with the uh, substance-related disorder, uh, addictive disorder. Maybe it's that a person self-medicates with that substance to treat the symptoms of the anxiety and depression. But if those are existing, they could represent then a risk of relapse or a risk of misuse that otherwise would make it inappropriate at that level, that level one ASAM, level one, outpatient care. Uh, So if a person's uh, having any of those other associated sort of conditions, you'd want to make sure, too, that they're connected with an appropriate behavioral health service where that specialty or those issues could be addressed most appropriately. Not all addiction counselors are going to treat the entire person. Uh, even if it is within a behavioral health context, they're not going to address the depression. They're not going to address the anxiety or any of the other, again, conditions that could go along with substances. Uh, Maybe, again, self-medicating to treat those as were existing first. Maybe those showed up, though, as a result of using the substance. We've discussed that in a prior podcast as well, in previous podcasts as well. So we need to make sure if that, particular outpatient program where you've presented or that individual is presented for addictions care, substance-related disorder, that they also then are going to be able to either address there in a comprehensive manner or fashion all of the behavioral health concerns, uh, and if they are only going to treat or address the substance abuse or chemical dependency sort of aspect of it, You need to know that, and they should then also uh, make sure, uh, ensure, that's a better word, that they've assessed that as well, and that you are in or the patient that's coming or presenting for care is in appropriate support for those other conditions. They're receiving actively engaged in treatment. Uh, Once again, there's just a lot that goes along with Substance abuse, chemical dependency, that represents risk. Depression could lead to suicide, again, for instance or example. So you want to make sure, the clinician wants to make sure, a good consumer wants to make sure that whoever they're speaking to has a comprehensive treatment plan put together that includes active treatment of these other conditions as well as the substance-related disorder. Or substance abuse use disorder. Beyond that, there's also then dimension four, which is uh, again readiness for change. Uh, Is the person either in a place where they're motivated to change? uh, And if they're not, then is the impairment still somewhat mild? Uh, The obstacle, the barrier, the, the cause to why they're not ready to change? Is it more mild or more severe? It could be moderate, but the risks of any other sort of associated circumstances, these other dimensions, one, two, three, five, or six, relapse as well as uh, uh, a functional or dysfunctional living environment, those are low, so there's really not a lot of risks there. You might be able to uh, uh, kind of accept... A lower level of readiness or preparedness for change, because there's less of a consequence that could happen if they don't. But if a person isn't ready for change, and then they're at high risk for, uh, on a biomedical level, of some sort of physiological problem, or they've got anxiety and depression, maybe the depression includes some suicidal thinking. Uh, if there is the greatest potential or greater potential for relapse. If the living environment isn't solid and stable, then you would not want to keep them at that level one. You'd want to consider a higher level of care. When it comes to dimension five, which is the, again, relapse potential, uh, the risk of continued use, because after all, the aim of any intervention is to stop the use of the substance and the belief that you're not going to start to get better, regardless of how you measure that, physically, emotionally, psychologically, until you stop using the uh, abused substance, then the idea would be that if you are still using, you're not going to really begin recovery. Uh, If you have such a high risk of relapse, that even if you have stopped it's not for a, a long enough for a sustained enough period of time to be able to get any sort of traction in in terms of what the counseling or the psychological counseling can do for the individual the substance abuse chemical dependency counseling can do for the individual then that probably means outpatient level 1 asam outpatient care is possibly potentially inappropriate We also have, as I've uh, also further made already some allusion to, dimension six, which is uh, the support. If they're in a home where there's still active use going on or whatever otherwise might be a trigger for them, that patient, to actively abuse, that needs to be addressed and taken care of as well. Uh, If you continue to live in that type of an environment, those risks as triggers would constantly be there, that risk for relapse would elevate. And where there's always a risk for lapse or relapse or continued use, there's also then going to be, as we mentioned earlier in today's podcast, the chance, though, that the person may actually accidentally uh, overdose. They may get a wrong substance, they may be in the wrong frame of mind or state of mind uh, where they are so upset, so sensitive, overreactive to uh, how terrible it's feeling without having the substance in their system that they'll go and overcompensate. Uh, They'll take too strong of a medication or they'll seek out something that's going to immediately alleviate the terrible withdrawal symptoms Uh, and with that they may have friends who unfortunately are not very helpful when it comes to that and may actually be somewhat if they're continuing to use encouraging of some sort of a uh, use of a substance and uh, end up killing them uh, end up being uh, toxic uh, end up being lethal for them so if Early intervention, which was level 0.5, discussed in our previous podcast, uh, does not work. The person returns, again, for treatment, or a trouble, or the problem uh, continues troubles, a trouble, the trouble, a problem continues to the point where they are back in to someone's office for a similar assessment, or they've recognized at some level of awareness and insight that this is not getting better or rather getting worse, then when they come back in we're going to say earlier intervention did not work. 0.5 level of care is inappropriate. We probably should initiate with a level 1 outpatient. Now if they've had that before and then they come in again, it's a subsequent presentation or representing with the same issues, Uh, Again, it won't be the same because there's always a dimension of progression. Then what will happen at that point is we'll review what treatment they've received. We'll look at these six dimensions. We'll we'll try to make an appropriate real-time assessment of where they are. If we're fortunate enough to have seen the person before, we can refer back to the information that was garnered or obtained the previous encounter. If not, we can request records if available from other treatment providers. We also would want a historian. Someone with that individual, especially if we don't know them, this is the first time we've met them, they're genuinely a new patient. You'd want someone who lives with the person who could give you their history. And not only history, but could also tell you what is going on in the most immediate present of contexts. So very rarely would I consider an assessment, a diagnostic interview, to uh, be very valid and or, as we would look at it, reliable as far as predicting what's going to happen, giving us some sort of prognosis, and also speaking to then what happens when we include then the idea of a level of care to mitigate that progression, I'm not gonna consider it valid, very valid and reliable that interview if it did not include that sort of third party uh, input. And truthfully, because of the risk of codependency where uh, there is this enmeshment or connection between every addict and someone who facilitates or enables their addiction in a bad way, covers up for them, uh, maybe even continues to lie for them to be part of the denial, some sort of shared denial, for whatever reason, their own issues. I'd probably want more than just one informant or one source. I'd probably want several. And I would also say up to some reasonable amount the more the more likely that my findings are going to be valid the more the more likely i'm going to be able to see the situation for what it is then what i can project the prognosis to be the course where they are in the course of the disease and disorder and the more likely that i'm going to be able to uh, choose an appropriate level of care based on these six dimensions these Uh, four different levels actually there's uh, yes there's only four levels of care with ASAM uh, based on these four levels of care this matrix as I've called it I'll be able to approximate the best place at that moment for the person to go with the idea of getting the best results and my treatment plan will therein reflect that That will be the basis of my treatment recommendations. So I need that information to do that well. Clinicians need that information to do that well. So when you bring someone in, should you yourself, as I might be speaking right now to someone who has an addiction, need some care or intervention in this way, take someone with you. If you're bringing someone in, recognize the importance of the clinician having permission. We can't do that without permission. There has to be a release, what we call, in the again, in the industry, a release of, of information. But once that's secured, once that permission is given, that will be necessary, that will be more than necessary, essential to getting the best outcome possible or available. Now again, should there be a failure of early intervention, 0.5 level of care, should there then be subsequently a a failure of level one outpatient care, then there is level one, not only when it comes to uh, substances, substance-related disorders, but uniquely, specifically to opiates, there is a level one outpatient care that includes Medication assist or opioid treatment program, an opioid treatment program that uses a medication assist treatment model, which is really then the prescription of a medication that would otherwise address not only the potential for withdrawal, but also in that preempt and prevent an individual from actually Using or abusing opiates, as we would be speaking again to specifically opioids. How that works, though, is because the medicine not only includes an opiate that they would be prescribed, but it includes an opiate in combination with an agonist, something that blocks the effect Of the uh, opiate in the person's system and uh, with that uh, the individual cannot get high they cannot use a substance and get high and with that too the potential for overdosing is greatly reduced since most of the overdose risk absent an intention to kill oneself is really driven by the desire, as I mentioned earlier, to have a particular effect, to get high. If an individual cannot get high, then that individual is not going to likely run as great a risk of overdosing. Again, the agonist, I want to make sure I said this right earlier, the agonist would be that thing that would otherwise mimic the substance, but at the same time, there is a, there's also a, another substance in the medication that then is a blocker and preempts then the uh, ability to achieve a level of intoxication that is desirable for the person if all they're looking for is to get high. Now now that brings up an interesting thought too in this sense that when it comes to readiness for change dimension 4 some individuals really do want to stop using opiates. And with that then they are not going to be in any way shape or form as inclined to misrepresent or mislead a clinician, and particularly as medication assist or opioid treatment program then becomes part of the consideration when it comes to uh, that level of care and the particular aspects of that care. Now we're adding to outpatient medicine to facilitate not only the sobriety element of sobriety uh, mitigate the risk of withdrawal, and preempt the person from getting high. If they really are interested in no longer getting high, that's going to work because that's the primary motive. At that point, for most people, is the effect of the opiate, and they're not going to get that with the medication assist. With the, and it's typically the two substances are buprenorphine and naloxone that are prescribed in combination. Again, the buprenorphine is the agonist, and, and with that then the naloxone is the blocker that is preemptive of getting high. But if they're not interested in that, then we would say their readiness for change is probably greater than someone who is not quite at that point yet and still somewhat inclined to want to get high because even if they come in and they say they want to stop, their mind still is, I really want something, though, to make me feel as good as when I'm on that drug of choice, and again, in this case, the opiate. But the medication assist medicine, usually Suboxone uh, or some a variant of that may go under a different name, different pharmaceutical company that manufactures that, that is not going to achieve, however, that effect. And so they're not going to be satisfied. That may then indicate that even outpatient with medication assist may not be appropriate. Now, again, I do not want to rush through this. This is really the meat of it all because, as much as we've set up the diagnosis, Hopefully, I've been able to give you enough objectivity or objective symptoms to be able to see it for what it is and make a good decision whether or not you or someone you know may have a problem and need to come in for that kind of a diagnostic interview and assessment. Besides acknowledging the problem, everything then is about the best means to treat it with the highest rate of... A success so I don't want to rush through this so I'm going to go ahead at this particular point in our conversation today and sort of set that up for our next podcast we're going to continue to look at again American Society of Addiction Medicine the level of care one which is outpatient now we're looking at the addition of medication assist treatment buprenorphine, naloxone combined, typically called suboxone, and how that can be useful and how that its utility, its usefulness, is tied to mitigating risk of not only withdrawal, but also relapse potential, also managing biomedical conditions, which would be dimension two, It even has a behavioral health or psychotropic sort of effect for some individuals in terms of stabilizing their emotional reactions, their behavioral problems that either have emerged as a result of the substance misuse, abuse, and or possibly were there and why the person began using a substance such as an opiate in the first place, but if medication assists, Suboxone can do that and extend the opportunity for the body to make appropriate on a physiological level as well as psychological level, readjustments to get back to more normal mindset, bodily state of functioning, that is a win. Because once more, if we go back to our first program, most people will relapse of individuals will relapse within the first year. It is not until year three that the percentage of relapse even drops below 50%, 36 months. That is a long time, and particularly, and this is with opiates, particularly with opiates, that buys a lot of time. And in our next podcast, we'll explain why on a physiological level that can happen or how that, in a very basic sort of way, how that occurs, that the body can get back to normal while still taking a measure of a synthetic opiate such as buprenorphine. But again, we'll discuss that in our next podcast. Should you have questions, I'm always available. Uh, I post an email address on the podcast, at the description of the podcast, contact me. You can reach out to me if I can't help you, if it's beyond my scope of practice, if it's uh, in an area that I feel like you need somebody closer geographically to you, an area as in geography, uh, I would be glad to help you locate a provider, someone who can assist. Uh, if there's something I can do for you specifically, Of course, I want to do that as well. So please, if you have questions, feel free to ask. And in the meantime, between now and our next podcast, uh, I just wish you the best, and I hope that you give this some thought, and that you will indeed choose to uh, join me on our next edition of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Thanks.